This is a conversation with journalist William Yang on Taiwan's response to the coronavirus, COVID-19, as well as how this is differentiated from China, how Taiwan sees itself on the international stage in this moment of crisis, and what the world could perhaps emulate from Taiwan's governmental response to the coronavirus, in particular for listeners in the United States, the urgent need for what we call Medicare for all, but other countries would simply call a national healthcare system. William is a great guest who's done fabulous reporting both on this crisis, but also issues throughout Asia. I highly recommend his reporting for a better understanding of how countries are handling the corona crisis with much more efficacy and diligence, as well as common sense, than the United States. For more conversations like this, you can go through our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. You can find that on iTunes, Google, Spotify, and other platforms. We have great conversations with Tim McLaughlin of The Atlantic, on Hong Kong's response to COVID-19, as well as Rui Zhong of the Wilson Center and her interview on how China had to endure this crisis when it initially broke out in Wuhan. We also have great videos on our YouTube channel. You can find that by searching for Asia Art Tours. It features footage from art, artists, and protests all over the world. And lastly, you can go to our main website, asiaarttours.com. We host programs that connect people to the art and activism of artists, thinkers, and academics throughout Asia. All right, here's our conversation with William Yang on Taiwan, COVID-19, and the coronavirus. I hope you enjoy, and I hope for American listeners, this further inspires them to campaign and fight for Medicare for All. So my name is William Young, and I am the East Asia correspondent for Germany's uh, international broadcaster Deutsche Welle. I'm based in Taipei. Uh, I've also regularly contribute to uh, outlets like The Independent in the UK, The Guardian in the UK, and I previously worked uh, with Mega Rajaga Palin uh, for BuzzFeed News for about a year. And before that, I uh, founded a new startup of my own with a group of friends in the Bay Area. It's called Katagala Media. We focus on bringing the Taiwanese story to the international audience. So for um, Taiwanese diaspora at the moment, what's the conversation like? What the heck are the conversations like between uh, transnational families about um, the complete failure of the U.S. compared to a Taiwan where 10 cases is considered a huge jump. What, what have been some of the, the strange and alarming conversations uh, you've been having with friends and family? Well, the number one uh, conversation that I've been having with, you know, my friends and family back in the U.S. is that, you know, everyone is trying to get back here, you know, within their capacity. Some of them already started working from home in California, for example. So, uh 
In fact, some of them already came back a few days ago and they decided to, you know, despite the time difference, they think that it's still better for them to be in Taiwan rather than being in the U.S. because they trust the healthcare system here more and they also does not really uh, trust the Trump administration's ability to contain the virus, you know, judging from the big jump that the U.S. had yesterday, which is more than 4,000 cases being confirmed and uh, they were telling how, you know, the atmosphere in supermarkets over there is really uh, frightening and also, you know, quite some cases of, you know, racial tensions going on, especially in uh, parts of the California or the country where uh, there are fewer Asians than, I guess, uh, in other parts. So they think that being back in Taiwan, you know, A, they can trust the healthcare system and B, they don't need to worry about the a sky high price tag that could come out of, you know, at the, oh, if they unfortunately had to be admitted into the hospital uh, in the US, for example. So they think for them, the best decision is to be back here, you know, figure out how to work through the time difference and stay here for a while during, uh, you know, until the outbreak kind of subsides. Um, could you give us an update on where Taiwan is with the coronavirus and, and please, uh, the exact figure of cases if you have them? So the current uh, figure that we have until what well, we actually would probably have a daily briefing in the half an hour or so, but at least until now, we have 108 cases and uh, there have been a lot more uh, bigger jumps over the last three days because of the uh number of people coming back from abroad, you know, before the uh, government's travel ban came into effect. A lot of them came back before Thursday uh, because they don't want to, you know, be quarantined uh, for two weeks, like what the government would ask them to do. And some of them would just want to get out of, you know, other countries before travel bans in those countries come into effect. So, uh, at least uh, since Monday, we've had about a 38 to 40 case jump. Uh, that's considered pretty big uh, for Taiwan just because of the fact that we were able to keep the number down to about in the high 50s and lower 60s for about two to three weeks uh, before this big jump. So, uh, And people are starting to feel a little bit more anxious and panic than the previous period because just because of the pure number and also they were worried about the possibility of community infection. So there have been a little bit more panic buying uh, behaviors showing throughout like big cities in Taipei, for example, uh, the grocery shop stores around my area. A lot of the uh, basic necessities are like out of shelf or uh, the gov even though the government have been encouraging people to do that because they kept mentioning that uh, Taiwan has enough stock uh, for that. And so your report uh, for DW is very valuable of how Taiwan kept the infection rate so low. And taking as much time as you'd like, I'm wondering if you could outline some of those techniques, some of the foresight the government used, and your general thoughts about the competency of the government's response in Taiwan. I think as many of the other uh, media uh, reports about that has really come out, uh, the number one thing that they pointed to is the experience that Taiwan learned during the SARS epidemic. And what that taught Taiwan is that uh, the government needs to have a very uh, stringent uh, mechanism and also 
uh, 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 basically a whole uh, task force in place in case that an epidemic break out. So that's what the government did the year after the SARS epidemic. And that uh, central command center has been in place ever since. And this time uh, when uh, cases of uh, SARS-like pneumonia started to emerge uh, in China at the end of last year, the government immediately uh, secretly, you know, like set up and uh, like mobilized this task force and they sent experts to Wuhan uh, in the beginning of January uh, to learn about some important details and, you know, facts about this virus and that the Chinese government already had. And they came back here, they started all the work, including uh, Taiwan was one of the earliest countries to announce travel bans on uh, travelers coming from China, Hong Kong and Macau, uh, because they wanted to, you know, uh, cut off the possibility of Taiwanese people being exposed to uh, the potential virus that were brought in from China. And then later on, the government uh, announced the rationing of the mask because uh, there was a brief period of time where uh, the public were, uh, again, panic buying up all the masks that were being sold uh, on the shelves across the drugstores. So the government had to launch a centralized uh, mechanism to ration out uh, the number of masks that each citizen are entitled to get every week. That has been working really well and people are really uh, able to comply to it because of the fact that they know that, uh, you know, why the, gov the government basically very transparently communicate the intention behind all these schemes so that the public were able to be receptive and also understand what the government had to do with it. And they're actually pretty supportive. So right now what happens is that uh, people can have to line up outside drugstores throughout Taipei uh, once a week. And during that time, they will pick up the number of uh, masks that they can get for the next seven days. So for adult citizens, it's three masks for this for a seven-day cycle, and for children is five masks for the seven-day cycle. Uh, and we've been doing that for more than a month now, and that has not really set off any public complaints or public outcries about, you know, not having enough masks for them. And uh, then later on, the government also in implemented a very, uh, like, comprehensive uh preventative measures. So now mo almost every private company and also public schools, they are uh, requiring students and their employees to have the temperatures checked before they go into the office. Anyone with a temperature beyond 37.5 Celsius degree will be asked to go home and go to the doctor immediately. Uh, and if their symptom did not improve, then the local clinic doctors will then uh, assess if they need to transfer this patient to the larger hospitals to get the actual uh, COVID-19 test or not. It's a very clear and streamlined uh, process so that that's how Taiwan is able to really stay on top of the curve uh, of the whole epidemic. From my understanding and my own experience living in Taiwan, uh, there's a high degree of trust in the government and healthcare because of competency, access, and fairness. Where in the U.S., I'll, I'll tell people, you know, who are um, Taiwanese at times, at least the friends I have can be a bit dubious about when I shower praise on Taiwan. And I'll say, no, you don't understand. In the U.S., you know, you don't know anything going into the hospital could literally bankrupt you for, for the rest of your life. Could you explain for um, individuals who uh, all, do contact COVID-19 
and do need treatment, what uh, does that process look like? And are there any of these fears or paranoia of having to interact with the government like there might be for an American citizen who's been taught that uh, you don't go to a hospital unless you're it's a life or death situation? Uh, so the government, again, in the very beginning, uh, they set up a a hotline, a free hotline for any citizen who are resembling the key symptoms like fever or dry cough and joints or muscle pain uh, for them to call in and then report their cases. And then uh, the staff on the hotline will then determine whether they need to be immediately uh, rushed to the hospital or they can wait and they should go to the local clinic first instead uh, to get the basic health check to determine whether it's actually a flu or common cold or it is indeed COVID-19. And if uh, they have a travel history uh, over the last two weeks to parts of the world that are of high risk, then uh, the hotline staff will immediately deploy ambulance to go and pick up the uh, patient instead of letting them to find their own way to go to the hospital because they believe that, uh, you know, le uh, le giving citizens that um Num that 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 power is in fact going to endanger other uh, public. So they have a very again streamlined uh, process to have, deal with that. And then uh, with it with regard to uh, the treatment at the hospital, uh, the government also have a very uh, stringent uh, streamlined uh, I guess process, which is uh, they will be go to the ER and then they will be tested for the first time. If the result of the first test shows that uh, it is in fact positive, then they will actually be tested two more times to really confirm and rule out the possibility of a fake uh, positive result. And if all three test results came back with, uh, to be positive, then they will be taken into the uh, depressurized room, you know, to uh, be monitored and also starting treatment immediately. Uh, that's been currently the uh, process and what the government also did is they combined the uh, national healthcare data base with the uh, immigration and customs data. So uh, doctors will be able to immediately uh, calculate and assess the risk of each patient, and even uh, to a point where they can track Taiwanese people's uh, contact history and travel history to, you know, uh, contact and reach out to individuals that might have the risk of also contracting the virus because of their contact history with this infected individual. So this is actually a very scientific and also at the same time a very uh, innovative uh, way of doing it. But of course, like some people would argue that, you know, there's the downside of uh, privacy being uh, compromised because of the fact that the government had so much uh, information about an individual in their hands. And uh, but the so far in the Taiwanese society, no one's actually arguing about that, uh, just because I think uh the memory from the SARS epidemic was still very fresh, and they consider it a better way to let a very competent and transparent government to lead the way, and they would just, you know, put their trust in the government and comply as much as they can. In the U.S., we saw individuals price gouging, uh, um, going through uh, a wave of the, the mass buying and stockpiling of things like masks, hand sanitizers, and so on. We've American social media is flooded with people who don't have a thousand dollars in savings in their bank account are worried that 
um, because of, of their economic precarity, uh, they won't be able to survive this pandemic in terms of uh, austerity itself. Uh, what some people might call America's very strong turn into neoliberal economics. When I compare that to a Taiwan that is fixing the prices of masks, so uh, a government-issued mask, my understanding, is, is quite affordably priced deliberately to make sure everyone can have one. Um, when there are welfare packages, my understanding is that for people who have to be forcibly quarantined, the government is providing a small sort of financial incentive, and that people are receiving care packages where food, hygienic goods, these sorts of things. Um, to me, some of these really seem like programs that I would associate with socialism or social democracy. Where And when I compare that to America, it really is striking. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about some of these other programs, how they provide a feeling of security uh, to Taiwanese citizens who, has, who've had, as you've said, you know, if you're living in the Bay Area and you're working a, a professional level job, to, to, we're talking a lot of money here for some of these people in the tech industry, in, in finance, and, and so on. To come back to Taiwan is, is a very dire indictment of, of how they feel about the U.S. healthcare system and U.S. governmental services. And I, I, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about some of these programs I've mentioned and how they bring a feeling of comfort, if, if I've read that correctly. First of all, the most important part is that the government uh, carry out these uh, caring programs during the quarantine uh, period in a way that they make the every citizen to feel like you know their health is the priority for the government, and uh, they do want these people to get better and get out of quarantine as soon as they can. And so the care package, uh, you know, again, in a way, is a very thoughtful design, and it often includes uh, a cell phone that these individuals can use so that the government can, unfortunately, they have to track them and make sure that they did not, you know, go around and, like, possibly endanger other people by spreading the virus without knowing whether they're uh, they, they are indeed carrying the virus or not. So that's one thing. And the other thing uh, that's very important is that uh, they will do a daily checkup on these people to see how they're doing and also help them to, you know, even pick up their trash because they cannot leave their room to uh, put throw away the trash. So that's also actually very thoughtful. So in a way is uh, the details that the government pay attention to during the uh, quarantine period and also the fact that they don't let these people feel like uh, being put into quarantine is a punishment, but rather uh, they show their compassion to these people and let them know that, you know, this is just temporary and uh, the government is doing their best to make them not feel like it is, you know, they're being isolated in a way that, you know, something that they're carrying is, you know, a, st a stigma in the society. So I think that's a very big difference. And then uh, another very important point comparing to the U.S. is indeed the fact that uh, healthcare is so affordable here, and nothing is ever overpriced uh, here in Taiwan comparing to the U.S. Even if you have a very good health healthcare coverage, a lot of the times with the coverage itself in place, you uh, 
people would still be paying a lot more than what people would pay here with a government-funded and supported uh, national healthcare system. So they'd rather come back here and uh, receive all the treatment and checkups here. And a lot of the times what they said is that uh, the attitude of the medical staff here in Taiwan, uh, they find it a lot more comforting than having to, you know, uh, go through and deal with uh the medical staff in the U.S. at the hospitals, a lot of times if they're way too busy, then they would just, you know, uh, look at your, like, symptoms and also uh, what's wrong with you and then just uh, move, transfer you to the next person that is going to be in charge. So I think uh, the difference here is that the uh, at least four people either have already confirmed contracted the virus or who are going through a panic period of, not knowing what their status. Uh, what the government and the local medical staff did is that uh, they would try to walk everyone through and talk them through and figure out together whether, you know, how high is the possibility that they might have already contracted the virus. And then from there on, uh, they would recommend them, you know, what would be their logical next step, or even they would already have some logical step in place for them so they can just immediately transfer them to the next uh, point. So uh, I think, the, the, again, it's a very uh, coordinated and well-designed and transparent process that earns people's trust and also like love about the healthcare system here. So this will probably be a quick no, but it's important to establish. Recently, uh, several U.S. senators have been accused of uh, selling shares with advanced knowledge of the full impact of the coronavirus. Has any governmental scandal like this come to light uh, in Taiwan? Well, again, surprisingly, it has not happened here because of the fact that uh, the government has been very transparent about everything that, you know, is happening here. They report all the details of the cases as much as they can without having, you know, like breaching the privacy of each individual. And at the same time, they would even list out, you know, the details like their travel history, their contact history, where these people have been before they were confirmed. Um, and so the citizens do not need to feel like they have to like dig for these answers because it's right out there. And the you know, doing it in the daily briefing televised is a very, you know, huge commitment for any government official, especially for those in charge of uh, fighting a pandemic like this. So I think uh, we do have to give uh, the task force chief a very high level rating in terms of the fact that uh, he has been staying on top of everything and not absent from any of these everyday briefing from Monday to Sunday. There's no break for him. Now, because of the rise of the cases, actually, uh, we just had a number for today is 27 cases, which is the largest uh, number that Taiwan has had since the uh, start of the outbreak. 24 were imported and three are locally uh, transmitted. And so, you know, you, you imagine that for him, he has to do this televised uh, briefing twice a day and how committed he needs to be while also dealing with other, you know, Im important things, including how to increase the capacity of hospitals and testing uh, capacities. 
while at the same time being in touch with research teams, you know, checking in on their uh, progress on developing the 15-minute uh, rapid test that uh, has been known around the world uh, that a Taiwanese research team has been devoted to. And also the uh, modified version of one of the key uh, medication that it has been used and proven to be kind of uh, successful in treating patients with COVID-19. So I think overall, it's just the ability, you know, of the and the dedication of the government and also the openness and transparency that uh, the society don't need to even worry about the government hiding anything because uh, they are putting it out there. And in fact, uh, they know that they need to put it out there. And they're encouraging people to also share as much information that they feel comfortable as possible with doctors and medical staff so that, you know, they can be quickly finding the best solution to move forward. So there's been discussions uh, for Taiwan to build cooperation both with the EU and the U.S., uh, particularly as being a democracy, many of its methods of uh, quarantine, of medical practice, can be put into place in ways that the, the more blunt methods uh, that have proliferated in China cannot or cannot uh, as easily. For both scientific or for simply the methodology of how Taiwan has handled this, what are, what are some of the techniques and technologies that they will be trying to export globally? And that can be as small as masks or as big as a rapid response test. But what are some of the uh, breakthroughs that Taiwan is currently working on and is in talks with uh, collaborating or sharing with other countries facing this epidemic? Uh, I think one of the key uh, things for Taiwan to share with or Taiwan has been sharing with the world is you know, the use of data to really help the medical staff to be able to more efficiently uh, assess and, you know, uh, figure out who are the suspected and potential cases and which are the cases that uh, are maybe just not real COVID-19. So that's one area. And the other area, I think, is the fact that how uh, the local government needs to be very uh aware of every little update that is happening uh, in their local district, because that's also played a, a, a very important key here in Taiwan is that local officials and central government had a very streamlined uh, command line so that uh, instructions are very easily fulfilled and also implemented over here in Taiwan, whereas uh, I would imagine that in the U.S., for example, the state government had a lot of power to decide things. And so if the federal government announced something, it might not be as easy as uh, in Taiwan for uh, each state to really implement it fully to the level where uh, Taiwan would have been able to achieve. So I think that's one challenge for uh, countries like the U.S. So for uh, Taiwan's diaspora community, and the uh, diaspora community of China, uh, one of the main talking points has been the spike in racist incidents uh, that have been occurring in the U.S. Um, James Palmer uh, has, has and, and Bill Bishop, though, at times, and this is my criticism of Bill Bishop, I think he can be a bit, um, he can put his thumb on the scale a little bit when he wants to make a point. 
Um, I don't have that critique of, of Mr. Palmer, but Bill Bishop, I, I would, uh, have, have noted that within mainland China, at least, there's been a rise of uh, fear of foreigners, of um, xenophobia, broadly speaking. Within Taiwan, could you touch base on, on both these elements? How has the Taiwanese diaspora that's lived abroad or studies abroad um, psychoanalyzed the racism it's encountered? What has that done in terms of how uh, individuals who were planning to go abroad or who, who split time between Taiwan and, and Western countries, uh, what damage has that done in terms of uh, how people are, are talking about these countries? And then within Taiwan, have they made um, or have they strategized a way to avoid the racism that is very prevalent in the U.S. and Europe um, and appears to be rising in China, but still is nowhere near the levels of these Western countries uh, of, of individuals attacking Asian uh, uh, Asian Americans or, or uh, Asian Europeans who reside in, in the countries? I think for a lot of the Taiwanese people studying, for example, in European countries, uh, what they decided to do is that, you know, after a few incidents that they have encountered, which is being shouted at for wearing a mask on the street, uh, a lot of them just decided that, you know, there's no point for them to stay in that country during this time since, you know, schools are closed and a lot of the times uh, public, you know, uh, move, freedom of movement is uh, extremely restricted. So for them, it makes more sense to just come back to Taiwan. So that's what a lot of them did. Uh, whereas I think in China, the discrimination comes more from locales. So there is still a very stringent and uh, deeply rooted, uh, you know, uh, discrimination against people from Hubei province, from Wuhan especially, because they, a lot of, we see that from, since the very beginning of the epidemic in January, I reported a few stories about how, you know, uh, people in Wuhan, when people realize, when people in other provinces realize that these are people coming back from Wuhan, you know, they either banish them out of the house or refuse to serve them in, in, in hotels and uh, like they're denied access to restaurants and places. So like that is more of this type of uh, discrimination that is still happening in China. But whereas around the world, uh, Asians in general, what they do is uh, they try not to let this growing trend bother them and stop them from protecting themselves. But at the same time, realizing, you know, maybe how to prevent it is a uh, you know, maybe take a different route to go to work so you can avoid more con less contact with people. Whereas, uh, you know, if it's their students and their school has already suspended or turned going online, then they might as well just decide to come back to Taiwan earlier than uh, they originally planned. Because uh, in their opinion, being back here is a lot safer than being in the U.S. and Europe, where uh, hospitals are probably now the breeding bed of a lot of these cross infections and uh, even just being in public a lot of the times is uh, the risk is much higher than probably being in hospital here in Taiwan, for example. Uh, and also the fact that how the uh, panic shopping trend is a lot worse in these Western countries than in Taiwan, because again, the government has not really taken the very active role of informing the public about how much 
resources and they still have in stock, for example. So I think these are all, you know, uh, things that Taiwan has advantage of and the Taiwanese diaspora people have decided to take these advantage and just decided to come back here. And within the U.S., obviously, uh, President Trump has been extremely racist um, for a long time. You have been, I think, very nuanced whilst in terms of talking about why the sort of origin of the virus is important while still opposing the racist uh, and xenophobic rhetoric of someone like a Trump or other bad faith China critics who mostly use it as a way to bolster their own patriotic bona fides rather than any real concern for people of Hong Kong, people of Taiwan, or or people within China. Could you discuss a bit about um, what uh, Trump's actions have done in terms of uh, souring many uh, Asian countries' view of the United States, of his, of his repeated racist rhetoric, and for you as someone who is opposed to China, but also opposed to racism, why is the this this battle of the narrative over the virus so important uh, for, for Trump and for the uh, People's Republic of China government as well? Within Asia, actually, the only group of people that are very sensitive towards what Trump has said and made uh, during his open, you know, public comments over the last few days are Chinese people. Like people here in Taiwan, they, in fact, a lot of the times agree or even, you know, like cheer on and find nothing wrong with what Trump said, which I think it's very upsetting. Uh, we can get back into that in a little bit. Uh, that has a lot to do with the growing anti-China uh, sentiment over here uh, over the last few years. But uh, coming back to Trump is that, you know, it's very clear that Chinese people now see Trump as uh, treating them as the, you know, ultimate en- enemy and i think also what the uh spokesperson of the chinese foreign ministry has been trying to the rhetoric and the framing that they've been so uh desperately pushing around the world you know we are seeing all these uh chinese ambassadors around the world using their public accounts to repeat that narrative and so when when a narrative is being repeated so much it just makes you know uh sense that for Taiwanese people oh for, for the Chinese people to buy into that notion and think that yeah you know Trump is entirely just ill-intentioned and he is trying to you know uh have the entire world isolate us so uh, that's why we should really just uh stand up to whatever that he said and oppose what he said uh, which I think it's a very normal and natural reaction uh and why has the uh, origin, you know, the battle over the origin of the COVID-19 become so uh, important for China and the U.S.? I think we have to go back to the leadership style of both Trump and Xi Jinping. Uh, I think both have very strong personal character and style and both have very strong ambition. And uh, both of them hate being, you know, like stepped over by any another person, but unfortunately, uh, these are two of the most powerful countries in the world that are constantly fighting for uh, the ultimate leadership in every aspect. So even when it comes down to things like this, which is technically just a word of words, 
uh, it still turned into something that could potentially have lasting impact on the global geopolitical uh, you know, power relations as what we see a uh, part of the uh, group of, that's heavily affected are the American journalists that are being banished out of China so abruptly. And all the experts ab uh, agree that the journalists are being affected as part of the larger power struggle between China and the U.S. that extended from the argument that the origin of the virus did may not come from China, and in fact, it might be a conspiracy theory that the U.S. is trying to implement, you know, implant in Wuhan, and so that you know, winning that battle, which to a lot of us might seem ridiculous, but to the two of them who have such a weak self-esteem in terms of you know, they need to make sure that they are not exposing or showing any sign of weakness or uh, bowing to the other person. It, is, it still becomes something so important that they just need to uh, raise it up to the highest level at the international politics. And uh, I think the world just needs, needs to realize that when these two go head to head with each other, it could often become something that's so global that would, you know, you know just impact uh, everyone's life livelihood and you know look at the American journalists and as for uh, going back a little bit to the Taiwanese people's view on this you know a lot a lot of people here in Taiwan are in fact uh, supporting the idea that the virus should just be called the Wuhan pneumonia or the China virus or the Wuhan coronavirus because they are saying you know why do we need to be so sensitive to avoid being discriminative when it comes to China. But, you know, when the Spanish flu uh, is being used, uh, Spain does not get to, you know, protest for being labeled as the place of origin of these viruses. Because, I mean, after all, the virus did come from China and it did come from Wuhan. Uh, so they believe that China does not need to bully its way or push its narrative so hard that the entire international community needs to accept it in that way. But honestly, Taiwan is probably remain the only uh, one of the very few countries now around the world that are that the entire media outlet, no matter uh, government owned or public owned, are all very consistently using the word Wuhan pneumonia to describe this pandemic, which I think in a way is a very uh, irrational response to the treatment that Taiwan has been receiving from China over the last few years. And there are a lot of resentment. So uh, the media are all very, you know, surprisingly coordinated in their way of, you know, describing and writing about this virus, which I think it's not a very healthy way to improve uh, the long-term cross-strait dynamic or even just the long-term understanding that Taiwan can have about China. When it um, comes to the COVID-19 virus, something that has really uh, alarmed a lot of people in the U.S. obviously is fake news and not just um, uh, on the level of, you know, a rumor in a Facebook group or an anonymous tweet, but you literally had one of the largest news channels in the country um, saying this was nothing to worry about <laughs> and then completely adjusting their coverage 
uh, when it was far too late. For Taiwan, which does have uh, some issues where media is politicized between uh, certain political camps, uh, the DPP and the KMT, how did they put aside their politics to report on this crisis in a way that uh, American media might want to study, seen as it's failed so badly to do the role of media properly, which is to inform and protect the public? When the number one thing that is being threatened is not, you know, uh, each political party's uh, longevity or their sustainability. But, you know, when the thing, the number one thing that's being threatened is everyone's public health, then uh, these political parties, for some reason, they can set aside the differences and, you know, they know what is the number one enemy that they need to focus on. So uh, we haven't, like you said, uh, seen a lot of the uh, rather time-wasting arguments and quarrels between different political parties. Uh, but there are still some sporadic uh blaming games going on from the opposition party trying to question a lot of the uh, regulations that were rolled out by the government and uh, also the competence of the Taiwan government. But so far, all those little attempts of trying to paint her in a bad light failed badly just because of the very formidable uh, amount of public trust that Taiwan has been able to accumulate over the last two months, you know, since the outbreak started. Uh, and also international approval about Taiwan's experience. Taiwanese people do care a lot about how the international community, you know, like evaluate it or even look at it. So during this time, over the last two weeks, it's probably this, I would call it even the Taiwan COVID-19 orgasm, you know, like it's reaching to a level where like even news organized news outlets that never wrote about Taiwan will have a piece about that, you know, and oftentimes they would even want it to have it, you know, an original piece rather than just copying what other people have written. So I think that um, precedented level of public praising and also public support uh, international support, you know, that, that that really helped Taiwanese people to both gain a lot more confidence in the country and in the government. But at the same time, that becomes a very powerful tool for the ruling government to consolidate further their, uh, you know, uh, control over uh, the country politically. So I think all these factors adding up together uh, created the so-called uh, the, the 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 situation that we're seeing right now, which is very little pushback from the opposition or very little friction between different political parties. Uh, and it's a very, uh, you know, very coordinated look and fight against the virus. Uh, and as for the, you know, fake news attempts, uh, I actually did a piece, uh, I, I actually touched on it in my Deutsche Welle piece a little bit about how uh, Taiwan's uh, fact check center, which was established after the 2018 local election because of the rise of fake news that we're seeing and how it, it impacted some uh, election results. Uh, and that institution has played such an important role of debunking a lot of the uh, very ridiculous, rather ridiculous uh, fake news uh, initiatives. And uh, because of that, 
organization and institution, uh, Taiwan is able to really stay away from, you know, uh, falling into, uh, falling, falling as a victim to these uh, very rather vicious, but non-coordinated uh, disinformation campaigns. Do you have any pushback for bad faith China critics? Uh, so people who are trying to make this racist, like a Tucker Carlson or a Donald Trump or um, members of the Republican Party who, while <laughs> selling stocks and then denying uh, paychecks for people who need it, are tweeting out in unison about the, the Chinese virus. Do you, even though there is much to critique about China, is there any pushback or words of caution you would have for people uh, at this moment in global history? I think, again, you know, uh, it is important for us to know who we're criticizing and how we're crit criticizing them. Uh, China is always going to have their share of the responsibility to take, no matter how this whole pandemic ended up, you know, developing into. Uh, but one thing that we need to remember is that the Chinese people should not be the ones that are being blamed, but rather the common Chinese Communist Party should be the target of all of the blames that we are aiming at because they're the bad faith ones that are in the very beginning trying to, you know, uh, distort the uh, hide, you know, hide, hide the facts and like beautify the situation and try to, in order for them to maintain stability. Uh, and later on, you know, they were the one who also started this whole conspiracy theory to, you know, argue that the virus may not have originated from China, but uh, and then decided that the U.S. should be their target of blaming. Uh, so the CCP should always be the sole. Uh, target of all the criticisms and blames and also the, you know, whatever curse words that you guys wanted to use against China. Uh, but Chinese people, Chinese uh, people in the Chinese diaspora community, Asians in your country should not bear these, you know, the consequences of what one single authoritarian party uh, did that caused all this havoc around the world. So, I think that's the only thing that I would have for anyone who are passionately hoping to continue criticizing China for, you know, the inconvenience and the uh, anxiety and the horror that we're living through right now. Wow.